0: Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing. For things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really said and did. So that when Lawrence thinks he's loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus, and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before.
1: This is Traitor's Jack, Season 7, Episode 16. From Aslan to Jesus. Let to do children, part
0: three. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, Thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading some of Lewis's letters which have been brought together in several different collections. This season we've already read the correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in Letters to an American Lady, which just leaves Letters to Children and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. And in the last episode, we began looking at Letters to Children, and hopefully today we should be wrapping up that book. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. Ready to tick off another book, boys? Well, I'm ready to tick off another listener,
1: but <laughs> no I'm kidding.
2: Yeah, we get so much hate mail about stuff you say, but we just kind of screen it so you don't see it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm yeah no i'm 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 looking forward to this listeners you don't realize we split this one david did into categories and i would argue the first stuff was lighter stuff now we're getting into some playful lewis some literary advice some narnia stuff which i'll be curious to see you guys play off that a little bit and i'm officially halfway through the last battle well a third <sighs> i'm being honest
0: Ooh. <clears throat> how many times did i tell you finish last battle before you read letters to children
2: I don't, I don't feel like it's given too much away, thankfully.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way.
2: Well, <laughs> no, I, I'm excited, gentlemen.
0: Andrew, you sent us a message saying that your CS Lewis conference in Florida is now settled. Uh, would you mind telling listeners uh, what it is, what you're going to be doing, and where they can get tickets?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We'll launch registration in March. Um, You can find more information at churchofthemessiah.com, although we don't have anything up right now, but maybe by the time this airs, we'll have um, at least a placeholder. Many of you will remember the episode that we did with my bishop's daughter. My bishop is uh, Justin Holcomb Loves Lewis, and my rector suggested, why don't we do a C.S. Lewis conference here? And so we decided to do one. So April 26th, which is a Friday evening and 27th all day, uh, will be Mere Christians, a C.S. Lewis conference at Church of the Messiah in Winter Garden, Florida. Uh, That's in the Orlando area. For this first one, I hope that we do it every every year. But for the first one, I tried to keep it as low cost and in-house as we can. And so we've asked our previous guest, Alan Snyder, who is a member of the Diocese of Central Florida, as am I, he lives about an hour away. Um, Alan will come and be one of our keynote speakers and Kristen will also be a keynote and I'll do a keynote. And then we'll do a number of breakout sessions. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, we've asked, or I'm, I'm going to ask Sophia and then the daughter of another priest in the diocese who's also around that same age and loves Lewis. Maybe they'll do a, a breakout on Lewis and youth. It'll be a Friday night um, introduction, and then Saturday all day, and we'll do dinner Friday night, uh, lunch and uh, on Saturday, and then hopefully a Narnian feast. Let's see if I can mm. rustle up some cooks in our parish to use the Narnia cookbook and prepare some recipes for that. That's such a cool
2: idea, to have a yeah. bunch of the parish parishioners to be able to cook something. You yeah. have almost like a big potluck. That's a fantastic idea.
1: Yeah. Or we may have it catered. And so I'm just looking at the financials of all of that. Uh, we're going to try to keep the costs, you know, well under a hundred dollars and we'll have a, an ample scholarship fund. And so if folks want to come, we'll figure out a way for them to be able to do that. Um, we don't have potlucks at my church because we don't smoke pot and we don't believe in luck.
0: <laughs> no,
1: it's a stolen line, but, um, but, uh, yeah, we'll either do that or or do some catering. So, Um, and, uh, I tried and tried to figure out a title for it and just couldn't come up with anything. And so I settled on mere Christians and Kristen made up some graphics for that. And, uh, David, I'll, I'll get some of those to you so that we can link to that. So, yeah. So we're looking forward to that. Cool.
0: So what's everyone drinking today?
2: I'm two fisting admittedly, (laughs) but listeners, we are recording this at 5 PM. So it's okay. This is not a morning one. I'm doing a a little bit of the one that Bud Summers gave us 24. Ah, So I did the Lagavulin distillery edition. So for people who don't know, that's Lagavulin 16 thrown into a sherry cast after creation. Mm -hmm. And then to be honest, I was really craving. So I've learned how to master the creation of an old fashioned. I was the bartender for a party recently and I was just Ah. doing honestly like maybe 10 old fashions, 10 Negronis, 10 Aperol spritz and stuff. And so I really was craving one. So I have an old fashioned as well.
1: Uh, how do you like the Lagavulin so far? You
2: know, it's, it's, it's good. Yeah.
1: A little smoky for you? A
2: little bit, a little bit. I, I, I was, I should have did a little research. This was an impulsive decision after searching. I, I should have, if I would have known Lagavulin distillery edition was just like 16 with a little bit of a differentiation, I probably would have chose a different one. Okay. Uh, Because Lagavulin 16 I've had before.
1: Yeah. Uh, I find with the Lagavulin two drops of water, um. Uh, helps even more than one drop. So mm. I have got the Laphroaig, uh Carjas uh, that I got from, from Bud. Thank you. Yeah, I read some really interesting things and so went down to my local liquor store in my priest collar and ordered a bottle of scotch. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I, uh, I fit right in. So I love I'm it. having that today and I'm going to try it before I put in water.
0: Well, while you two are actually having alcohol, I shouldn't have any in the house. Um, <laughs> so I'm actually having a non-alcoholic beer. I'm having the Hazy IPA from Best Day Brewing. Uh, and they've oh, actually been oh. very nice to me because one of the cans burst uh, on its way to me and they're sending me a complete new set. So I'm getting a six pack wow. out of it. So thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent. I'm gonna email them and say that one of my cans
1: burst too. <laughs> Kidding. And who are we toasting today?
2: We are going to be toasting Joe Sanders. And this toast is going to be an inspiration of something I'm going to bring up later. One of Lewis's literary advice that not every single thing has to have a point, which we'll talk about later. But my toast to you, Joe, is when you en- when you read Lewis's fiction work, his Narnia works or anything of that, may you just be immersed in the experience and the feeling he's trying to create. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Cheers.
1: Cheers. (laughs) Joe, cheers.
2: I was like, going to finish it with and not get caught up in the truth. But now I was like, well, I mean, you can still get caught up in both, but this is what happens when I pull them out of my head.
0: Mm. Oh, is that where you pulled it from? Okay. (laughs) Or my butt. Yes. Please, Matthew, this is a family show. Just just (laughs) have to imply it, never say it. Well, in the previous episode, uh, I had grouped a number of the letters together into different buckets, different themes. And today I've got three more themes. Matt's mentioned them. Playful Lewis, literary advice and Narnia business. So Hmm. the first one, Playful Lewis, is one of the really nice things about reading his letters in general, but particularly his ones to children. How playful Lewis is. You know, some of the letters, they have doodles in them. Uh, and one mm-hmm. of them, he draws a cat, but only from behind, because he says he's not very good with the faces. <laughs> Speaking of which, as I mentioned in the previous episode, Lewis has a lot of anthropomorphizing of animals, treating them like real people, like they're characters from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, such as in the very first letter of the book, he's writing to his goddaughter, Sarah Nalen. And he writes, I'm getting to be quite friends with an old rabbit who lives in the wood at Mordlin. I pick leaves off the trees for him because he can't reach up to the branches, and he eats them out of my hand. One day he stood up on his hind legs and put his front paws against me. He was so greedy. (laughs) I wrote this about it. A funny old man had a habit of giving a leaf to a rabbit. At first it was shy, but then by and by it got rude and would stand up and grab it.
1: I wish he had done a book of limericks. That would have been great fun. I think
0: that would be fantastic, yeah. Of course, he was from Northern Ireland, not from limerick. and so. <laughs> <laughs> There's one letter where he's commenting on a picture of Reepicheep that was sent to him. This seems very common, that when children write to him about Narnia, they usually include some drawings. And for... <laughs> Andrew is moving a <laughs> Reaper Cheap doll across the camera. I can't even remember what I was going to say now. (laughs) Anyway, here's here's, here's one where he's talking about Reaper Cheap. He says, Reaper Cheap in your coloured picture has just the right perky cheeky expression. I love real mice. There are lots of them in my room at college, but I've never set a trap. When I sit up late working, they poke their heads out from behind the curtains, just as if they were saying, hi, time for you to go to bed. We want to come out and play. Hmm. You know this reminds me of a comment
1: I once heard. I don't know. I think it was a friend of mine who had visit visited Doug Gresham in at Rathbinden in Ireland, and she said that there were tiles in the kitchen as part of the backsplash with scenes from Narnia and they talked about Narnia as if it were a real place um and in many important senses, I think that it is and that kind of playfulness. Um, uh, I just, I find it delightful because I do the same thing, you know, I've never rented an apartment unless I thought that there was some nook or cranny that would allow me to get into Narnia from there. And, um, he reminds me of all of my friends. who talk about Narnia as if it is real. And, um, and I guess depending on your definition of real, um, it absolutely is. And so I'm glad to see that.
0: Okay. I've got one more example. He writes, it is a dreadfully cold, wet summer here. The cuckoo only speaks out once a day, and even the squirrels are depressed. <laughs> but, but then he does this one in 1958. It's not only about animals, it's also a pun. He says, there's just no news at all about Cambridge cats. I never see one. No news and no muse. <laughs>
2: How did I miss that the, the first go around?
0: Oh,
1: my gosh.
2: That's pretty good. No news, if you no if news. you
1: pay attention, he often complains about how hot the summers are, but almost never about how cold the winters are. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that he probably preferred autumn. Um, certainly, autumn best of all. Um, but I think that he likes a good cold winter uh, more than he detests a, a hot summer. Which is ironic because a couple summers ago, I was there on the hottest day ever recorded in England, and I was <laughs> there at the kilns, and it was bloody miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to
2: imagine that's equivalent to one of my most miserable experiences is the Santa Ana winds in San Diego because Mm -hmm. they just don't outfit apartments with AC there because you really don't ever need it. And it ends up being 80, it gets to like 105, somewhere between 100 and 110 for about 72 hours. And then the evenings ends up being 80, 85. You're just Mm -hmm. cooking in your apartment Mm -hmm. at night. I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't sleep. You just don't sleep.
0: Well, I don't think there's ever a guinea pig that speaks in the Chronicles of Narnia. But from one letter, we find out how Lewis would imagine them speaking. In 1955, he writes, I never knew a guinea pig that took any notice of humans. I actually lived next to a lot of guinea pigs. That's absolutely true. But (laughs) the guinea pigs go well with your learning German. If they talked, I'm sure that is the language they'd speak. Hmm. And actually, even in one episode, he says that he actually likes to act like a hippo Uh, he says (laughs) I have a sebaceous cyst lance on the back of my neck the most serious result is that I can never at present get my whole head and shoulders under the water in my bath and he puts in parentheses I like getting down like a hippo and only my nostrils out I love the humility.
1: I love the playfulness. And I love that he meets the children right where they are. And it's just, I think this too is just an example um, uh, to me to not take myself so seriously. What does uh, Chesterton say? You know, the angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. And mm. and I think that um, this side of him is just really
0: delightful. Mm-hmm. Matt, you had a letter from 1962 you wanted to mention.
2: Yeah, it was... It was more of a broader comment. I'm not sure if it's necessarily as playful as the fun ones you picked out, but he really had a correspondence. This was unexpected to me. Again, I didn't know what to expect when going into the Letters to Children. It was obviously different than Letters to Mary, an American lady, which just kind of built, 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 progressed, progressed, got deeper and deeper. But there's an individual, Joan, that he really developed a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of cool to see that play out in their dynamic. But he had said, How exciting to be both an opera singer and a cellist. And I just remember thinking to myself, how cool that he's corresponding with this child, probably like six years ago, eight years ago. I probably should have looked up when he the very first correspondence. And now I believe she's in high school or maybe early college, if I if I got roughly the time frame right, and is really coming into her own and an opera singer, a cellist. Like that's just incredible. Hmm. And it says, later, we learned she went on to University of Toronto. Okay, so this would have been probably right end of high school. And Lewis remarks that maybe she could have found what she needed closer to home. And I wanted to make a comment on that too, because I think it was Lewis that wrote like, there's really no reason to live anywhere but where your closest friends are. I can't, hmm. I think that might have been in the Four Loves Friendship chapter or something.
0: It's throughout his letters. He talks about my one piece of advice to anybody is live as close as you can to your friends.
2: Hmm. And honestly, hmm. you know, I... I uh, the, I have Twitter and I was I almost like I rarely engage with people and I almost engaged with it. This one girl posted, she showed up in my like for you Twitter page and she posted, oh, I've moved to a new location because I was pretty depressed in my last one. And I'm even more depressed now. And it's my second move. I don't have advice. I honestly wanted to give her Lewis's advice. I just, I'm not an engager on Twitter. It'd be like, you know what? I have learned, because I've lived in a lot of places, the location is really secondary, third, fourth in your list. It's like, Mm. find a community. You can be in a terrible place with an incredible community, and you're going to like it way better than the most incredible place with a terrible community.
1: Mm. I think St. Mother Teresa, is it Mother St. Teresa, St. Mother (laughs) Teresa?
0: (laughs) St. Teresa of Calcutta or Mother Teresa, either of those work. Okay,
1: Saint Teresa of Calcutta. I believe I have this quote right. Said when somebody asked her for advice, she said, "Do not quickly move from the place where you live and spend an hour in a day adoring your Lord." Mm. And, uh, and that's not a not a bad idea. Yes. By the way, in that letter, Matt, which um, he had begun corresponding with her in 1954, but he says, I see from my index that we have corresponded since 1954. Man, what a research tool that index would be. Because evidently he kept an index of the people with whom he corresponded. So this is
2: eight years. So she was was definitely a child at the beginning of it, pre-puberty and then post. And so that's kind of cool to see that he went and got to see someone mature and then go off to uni. I love that.
0: Yeah. Nice one. You said uni. Uh, I (laughs) know. In our last episode, I mentioned my surprise at some of the language that Lewis used, you know, Americanisms. Well, in a letter from 1954, he actually uses the phrase really awesome.
2: So totally awesome.
0: <laughs> oh my
1: god! <gosh. laughs> oh my god, what are you saying, Jack? I'm
2: literally oh, thinking Jackson. of the movie Clueless right now.
1: <laughs> well, and sadly, he he means it in the sense of really um, full of awe.
2: Yeah, remember when we had a listener uh email in, David, and thought that I had what was that term? Um, they thought I had the voice, right? Talk oh, like the this. vocal fry. Oh. The vocal fry, yes. A listener literally <laughs> said, I have the vocal fry. Oh, wow. You'd be surprised guys. We don't actually, you know, every once in a while we get like a negative thing and we kind of chuckle. I don't think it <laughs> was just so much negative. You just,
0: gotta- just wanted you to address it. Go, go get some speech Ooh. therapy or something.
2: <laughs> Who and- wants to be classified as a vocal fry? <laughs>
0: Funnily enough, actually, I posted an article, well, it's actually a video, but it's in a blog post on our website about vocal fry very recently uh, with somebody accusing Lewis as having vocal fry.
2: Oh, I'm in good company. This is so good.
0: Yes,
1: but he's actually finished the last battle. (laughs) (laughs) Almost in good company. A pencil drawing of C.S. Lewis by Mary Nalen, who was Sarah Nalen's mother. So it's just a, um, it's a color copy of it that I got from my brown. I that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And he complimented her. He said he really, that she really kind of, he complimented her. He
0: said she really got it right. So. Well, back to really awesome Lewis. Uh, I also found <laughs> that Lewis, the master of the English language, in one letter, he described a picture sent to him of a serpent as a fine snaky snake. And in that same letter, one of the Kilmer children had explained that they've read the stories, that they're read stories while they're washing up. And uh, Lewis's response was, I never thought of your very sensible idea of doing both together. How many plates do you smash in a month? (laughs) It
1: sounds like something straight out of uh, the unexpected party at the Hobbit's house, at, Mm. at Bilbo's house. So he was very familiar, too, with a fair bit of washing up. Walter mm-hmm. uh, told me once he came in and found him in the galley um, up to his elbows
0: in soap suds. Hmm. Some things that Jack says are also just funny to those of us who know his biography. Uh, there's there's one letter when <laughs> he congratulates one of the children for the good marks at school and adds, I wish I was good at maths. <laughs> yeah, the, it was the yeah. thing that nearly kept him out of Oxford. Yeah. It absolutely did.
1: Yeah. And if he hadn't been a veteran and had the math portion of the entrance exam waived, um, the responsions exam, it was called, um, he would not have, have gotten into Oxford. He took the test twice and failed miserably, even while cramming for it. Um. afterwards. So yeah, famously, he gets a couple of key dates in Surprised by Joy wrong, including how old he was when he went to one of his schools. And so, <laughs> and so if Matt um, shares vocal fry with him, I share bad, uh, poor, uh, poorness at maths with him.
0: Some of the things that he says are Just kind of goofy. Uh, There's a letter in 1955 where he writes this. I'm thrilled to hear that your street runs north as well as south, because in this country, all streets and even country roads run in two directions at the same time. They are trained to change the moment you turn around. What is even cleverer of them, they turn their right side into their left side at the same time. I've never known it to fail. (laughs)
2: oh how did i miss Um, that too
1: that's so good yeah it's just silly it's just silly
0: clearly some poor child had mentioned that a road ran north in one direction and south in another direction and lewis was feeling in a sassy mood when he was replying yeah
1: absolutely well, and one of the things that'll keep you from missing it, Matt, is um, if you have the chance to, especially with, uh, with Mary and Margaret on the scene, it's wonderful to read some of these things to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times the, the audible sound of it will make things, make things jump out. I just recently, I, I think I mentioned on the last episode, I uh, was able to share some time with listener Paul Latino. Um, who came across Lewis, but couldn't read the book. I mean, he's a graphic art- artist and and a visual person, but um, sitting down and reading causes him to drift off a little bit. But listening to them on audiobooks really captivated him. And I was so envious of him because I find myself quite the opposite. I, <laughs> you know, listening to the book and I'm off in a thousand different directions. So, so but reading them out loud to someone, um, great way to... Uh, Uh, A great way to get the books. Not a bad courtship tactic either.
2: Well, if it's any consolation, Andrew, your last suggestion won me heaps of brownie points.
1: Which one was that?
2: I did write her a poem for Christmas, and I did spend a few hours putting it together. And it was very tailored to her. And she absolutely loved it and has read it. She said probably over 30 times since Christmas. Oh. Oh, so because you're one for one, I am going to give this reading out loud Hey, go.
1: Might be worth giving it a try. Um, That's also what I do in my class at church. We read mere Christianity a paragraph at a time and we stop whenever anybody's confused. Um, And I did that with high school students and that actually turned out quite well. Um, And that's partly because, as I've mentioned before, Lewis wrote for the ear, not for the eye, Um, not only for the eye. And so he wrote and he mouthed the words to hear how they would sound as he wrote them down. So not a, not, a bad, not a bad way to go forward.
0: All right, I've got one left in the playful bucket. Yes. In September 1957, he says this, and this is probably my favorite. It makes me, I think, more humble than proud to know that Aslan has allowed me to be the means of making him more real to you. Because he could have used anyone, as he made a donkey preach a good sermon to Balaam. <laughs> and that's a reference uh, to I Numbers love- 22, where uh, a donkey or an ass, if you prefer, uh, decides to speak. Yes, in the south we call him Balaam's ass,
1: um, <laughs> and uh, it reminds me not only of um, of puzzle the 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 ass the donkey in um, in last battle, but Lewis's marvelous poem, the Nativity, and he says. Among the asses, stubborn I as they, I see my savior where I looked for hay, which is a line that almost almost never fails to bring me to tears. And so I think that he identified with that. Um, And I think that wasn't it Saint Francis who called the body brother ass. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I like the use. uh, I like Lewis's use of the word ass. Uh, especially in reference to, a, to himself.
2: I uh, I had something with that same letter, David, a little bit different though. I love what you brought out. But at the very end, he did this with a lot of letters. So I could have chosen this from a different area, but he signs off in such a beautiful, humble way. I don't even know mm. if this would be in Playful Lewis. It might be in like Humble Lewis. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: But it, he signs off and he goes, perhaps in return, remember this, he's writing this to a child. You will sometimes say a prayer for me.
1: Hmm. and i just mm-hmm.
2: honestly when i read it the the few times that he put them in there the tone comes across super authentic like yeah. i just see lewis actually thinking a child praying for him is probably more powerful than a uh an adult praying for him i don't know why i just like i just picture lewis actually believing that like the pure innocence of a child and and them being like uh father or aslan or whatever's up there if you would pray for my friend c.s lewis it would be lovely <laughs> i yes. don't know
1: yeah i just love well, it though i think he actually believes it i oh, think I he believes too. in the power of prayer and i don't think oh, he's yeah. saying i pray for you you know as just a a, a common courtesy um oh, I, I have never fr- to 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 make a, a you know a sad admission um, when I know and love a saint who I know is getting closer to eternity, I have always wanted to, but I've never worked up the courage to ask them, hey, when you die and go to heaven, would you pray for me um, from there? And um, I think I need to change that. I think I need to be bolder about that. I don't wish death on anyone, of course. Um, but I wonder if um, I'd be shocked if the saints are not allowed to pray for us. And, um, and I think I should probably put my request in. And I think that Lewis did. And I know that he was, uh, very, um, very deliberate about adding to his prayer list and also very deliberate about not shortening it. He was very loath to take people off of his prayer list. And he often says to some of his correspondents, I pray for you daily. You know, he certainly said Mm -hmm. that to Mary Willis. Um, and so, yeah, would that I, would
2: that I did the same. Some some real quick advice for listeners, if you want. I actually have adopted this. I think I read some statistics somewhere. We probably brought it up in here in this podcast that 90-something percent of people that say they'll pray for you don't actually follow through, mm-hmm. and they actually answer that way in an anonymous survey. The perfect thing, obviously, I think is more what Lewis did and what Andrew just described. If you have a prayer list and you go through it, there's a middle ground that I've attempted to adopt, and I can't remember where I came across this, but it's actually really helpful. The second you tell someone you'll pray for them or text them or whatever, when you finish the conversation, just say a quick prayer, literally 15 seconds. Um, It's like, it'd be great to continuously pray for an individual, but at least you did actually pray in the moment. (laughs) So I actually have adopted that. And so when I send someone a text, if they send me something that's really been a struggle, I'm like, I'm going to say a prayer for you. Um, Because at least I know I can hold that commitment. And then obviously I attempt to keep some of them longer, but I don't know, middle ground, just some advice.
1: Sure. Well, and 15 seconds, if you've got it, or even just say, Lord bless and put in the name. That counts as a prayer and maybe Lord bless them, cause them to come to my memory, right? Um, Mm. I also think that if I dream of somebody um, or if I wake up in the night, those are also excellent times to pray. Um, And anybody who kind of drifts into my mind, I just say, Lord bless them, Lord help them, Lord heal them. You know, just one of those. We get prayer requests Mm. coming through on our prayer chain emails all the time. Uh, sometimes I'll Trump off to the Trump off to the to chapel and light a candle um, for them and take a picture and and text that to them. But sometimes I'll just say, "Lord bless, Lord, help, Lord heal, whatever it is. and mm-hmm. um and being quick to pray, um Stan Matson, um, of blessed memory. He just passed away. The president the founder and president of the c s. Lewis Foundation was uh, also mm-hmm. a joyful and in some ways childlike man. But he always said, when I would, whenever I would present him with a concern or ask him to pray for something or someone, um, and this is a phrase that I've tried to grab from him, he would say, well, let's pray right now, right? Also, as a professional, I have never asked somebody, can I pray for you? And had them say no. Um, <laughs> so can I pray for you right now? Sure. And it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be eloquent. Lord Jesus, let your mercy be upon your servant, Matt and David and all those whom they love. That counts. And uh, not like the Lord is counting, but um, it's a great way, I think, to pray. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, let's move from Playful Lewis to another bucket, the Literary Advice Collection. Uh, And Lewis has a lot to say about reading and writing. Uh, For example, he explains the uh, pentameter Pattern in poetry, the the, the meter, uh, even going so far as to actually draw the rhythm visually. Uh, he also recommends reading the Vulgate uh, for easy Latin mm-hmm. reading to keep one's Latin up. Obviously, you know, I did three years at uh, at school. I'm pretty sure I couldn't read a verse at this point, but it's worth remembering because <laughs> so- at some point my son's going to do it. Yeah. Let me jump in there too.
1: I took a, I took a Latin elective while I was in, I did a minor in Latin. Um, and mostly I studied Latin because I wanted to read Lewis's Latin and not have to look it up. Um, but I took an elective, um, in the book of Acts and it's very readable Latin. Um, and it's not a bad idea to, um, and even if you've had Spanish or French or any other romance language, you could probably pick up a Bible, a, you know, you can pull up the, the Vulgate online, and it's quite easy in some ways to at least pick out um, some of it, and it's and it's a fair bit of fun. So um, Vulgate, by the way, comes from the word meaning common, and so the, that that translation, the Vulgate Latin translation of the New Testament, is written in common Latin, and so it's pretty easy to pick up. <laughs> so yeah, excellent advice.
0: <laughs> but quite fun. schoolboy me would have never said that. Easy? No, probably not either. In fact, as you were talking about that, all I could think of was the scene in the Life of Brian: uh, "Romane ite domum," uh, Romans go home. If I'll I'll include a, <laughs> include a link in the show notes if if people haven't seen that scene because it is probably one of the best <laughs> scenes in that movie. Uh, uh, but back to literature. Throughout mm-hmm. the collection of letters, children are sending him stories and poetry as well as their drawings. And he gives some pretty candid feedback, although he is very mm-hmm. good at always finding something to praise together mm-hmm. with some criticism if he feels it's appropriate.
1: Yeah. And I love the humility and the the honor that he shows to these children by, by treating their poetry as poetry and not varnishing. And it's the same kind of advice that you see Lewis giving to Owen Barfield and others who would send them their poems or their stories.
2: Can we like... We bring this back, meaning this, this ability to be honest feedback. I was thinking this the entire time going through this, and I I believe we might have mentioned it briefly the last episode, but I mean, he has no problem telling someone this isn't great, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you could do this and this. If you, I, I felt like there's a number of letters that I read, and I thought, if you wrote that today, the delicate disposition of people today would just (laughs) not take that super well. It's a gift because, I mean, it's loving someone to tell them if they're willing to just take that feedback.
1: I just wish we had somebody like Diana Glyer who wrote a book like Bandersnatch, whose model of collaboration included um, a topic such as opposing. Yeah. Um, No, this isn't working. And and sometimes the most loving and honest thing to do is to tell somebody the truth. I mean, to do it lovingly. But to be honest, instead of, you know, instead of false and Lewis loved poetry and he wanted that same kind of rigorous criticism. In fact, the thing that bonded Lewis with Tolkien um, is when Tolkien sent him in 1929 or something, the lay of Lathian. Lewis responded the next day with a letter of praise and a couple months later with line after line of studied criticism. and he even adopted a false persona, a persona of some you know some literary critic. and he said, "Well, surely the line that reads such and such must be a corrupted text from a secondary source. But he criticized in the classical sense of that, um, you know, as a as a poetical critic. Um, Criticized Tolkien. And that's what made them fast friends is because Lewis was Mm -hmm. loving enough to give him honest feedback. And maybe that's a good thing that we could do in Lent. um, If we're looking for a Lenten practice, maybe we could leave off false modesty or false flattery and find ways, boy, this would be hard, find ways to give loving, honest, true feedback. And so as we think about our Lenten disciplines, I think about a couple of years ago in seminary where um, my Lenten discipline was not to raise my hand in class. And I knew it was a good discipline because it hurt <laughs> so much. But, um, but maybe um, maybe speaking the truth in love um, to, to one person uh, might be a good way to spend our Lent.
2: I have two suggestions, Andrew, for Lent discipline. <laughs> Take them with charity and love. No reference to till we have faces and no <laughs> show and tell flexing. I'll
1: take one of those, but um, but to, to, to not refer, reference to uh, till we have faces would be to do a disservice to you uh, and to and to our loving listeners.'ll <laughs> I'll try not to go out of my way.
2: <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll do the no flexing, but I admit I actually I, I have learned to love to we have faces more and more and more with your wisdom.
0: Well, returning back to honest criticism, (laughs) in one letter, he encourages a child to put off doing free church, uh, free church, I can tell my head is free verse poetry. Uh, Hmm. Lewis says that after you have been writing strict rhyming verse for about 10 years, it will then be time to venture on the free sort. So if he didn't like people doing f- f- uh, free verse unless they had done like uh, 10 solid years of uh, proper metrical poetry. And he says, at present, it only encourages you to write prose not so good as your ordinary prose and type it like verse. Sorry for being a pig. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, if you look at the history of uh, Picasso, the development of Picasso and Dali, um, they began as, you know, very deliberate Um, studied artists who painted, you know, very clear pictures, and they didn't go into surrealism or cubism until after they had mastered so much of their other art. And so, and not being a pig, I think is probably always good advice.
0: (laughs) Well, he not only gives criticism and answers questions, he quite often actually asks the children for their thoughts and opinions about things, particularly books that he's written, such as he asks one child, do you think the Dark Island in the Voyage of the Lawn Treader. Is it too frightening for small children? He's clearly trying mm. to do some market research and uh, understand better as to how to pitch his different styles of writing. Mm. And we'll talk about Narnia more in a little bit in the next section. But some of the children writing to him had read some of Jack's wider corpus. Martin Kilmer, I think I love this kid. He's, he's definitely one of my favorites <laughs> from the Kilmer children. Uh, and he had asked about the Crosser and their reproduction in Out of the Silent Planet. And Lewis replies, It was nice to hear from you again. The Eldilla are meant to be angels, not fairies. Haven't you noticed that they are always about Malelville's business? And then he says this, I admit I made the birth rates of the Rossa a bit too low, but of course you must remember I was picturing a world in its extreme old age, like an old man tranquilly and happily proceeding to his end. Hmm... Wow, old Mars.
1: I wonder why how, how Mars would have would have ended his life. That's a great
0: thought. I'm not Mars. I'm I'm Mars. I'm not Saturn. <laughs> he has another conversation with Martin, and I'm assuming his sister. I couldn't quite keep all of the kids and kids straight in my head. Uh, <laughs> but it's Anne. And he had a conversation with them about the different views regarding the angels and having whether they're having bodies or not. And he says that he simply chose the model for Out of Planet, which was most imaginable. Hmm. Quite amazingly, some of the children have read Till We Have Faces. So for this bit, I'm just going to hand over to Andrew.
1: <laughs> the three sisters are not very like goddesses. They're just human souls. Psyche has a vocation and becomes a saint. Or while lives in the lives the practical life. And is after many sins saved. As for Redival, well, we'll all hope the best for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I noticed about Redival is backwards, her name is the Empty One. And um, so, yeah, Lewis does kind of throw her a bone. Um, And uh, you know what? I'm I'm so glad that we did this season and this book because there's a third reference to Till We Have Faces being his best book. And I don't mean to belabor it, but he says, I'm so glad you liked Till We Have Faces because so few people do. It is my biggest flop for years. And so, of course, I think it
0: my best book. So that's a third reference to it as his best book. But it's interesting how he says that. Is he saying- Well, they think it's bad, so obviously I think it's the best, as in the two things are independent. Or is there an element of causality here that because it was so rejected, it's one that he has particular affection for? When you read Surprised by Joy, you find that contrarian spirit in Lois quite often. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, all kidding aside, um,
1: what he may mean by best is worth considering. And um, I certainly wouldn't take, till we have faces if I had to trade away, oh, I don't know, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader or his letters. Um, And so I think that like most things with Lewis, um, it's more of a continuum than it is an exclusion. And so if Till We Have Faces is his best, I think maybe he means he accomplished what he had set out to do, um, maybe better there. Or maybe he means it's his most mature. Or maybe he means it was mm-hmm. my most pleasurable book to write because I wrote it with joy. As in retrospect, uh, I was falling in love with her, and so I don't need that debate to necessarily continue on. <laughs> um, it's nice to see him pleased that some people would get the thing that he uh, that met the most um, kind of rejection and um, and misunderstanding in his critics. Um, but I also do think that he's grappling with love and he expresses in there some things about love, which had finally come into his life. And so part of what I mean about Tilia faces and why I keep going on about it, um, it has a special place in my heart because it was the, the place and the time at which Lewis really finally found love and found someone who loved him so much that he didn't even realize it, I think. And so, um. And it's 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 remarkable. I I'm, I'm glad that the children have discovered it. So I don't need to win that fight. Um, we you know, listeners, we have it mostly for fun, um, and. I wouldn't excise anything from his corpus. And I'm glad that it's part of that and seems to be maybe in some ways kind of where he was going uh, with much of what he had done. I certainly joined many others wishing that he had spent 10 more years with Joy Davidman. And I think whatever book that he would have read after that would have been my favorite and his best by far.
0: Interestingly, he does say in another letter that his favorites are Till We Have Faces and Perilandra. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Paralandra
2: is really good.
1: And Paralandra was about Venus. Paralandra was about Ungod, And so that's part of why I think that he's really meditating on human, physical, romantic, and even sexual love as a means of revelation of the divine as he is beginning to experience human, physical, you know, erotic love in in the person of Joy Davidman. And I think that love in some ways brings him fully into his own body and then brings him fully into an understanding of the tenderness of God when he is being so loved by this person with whom he wrote that book. And so this is not me banging the drums, but this is me being delighted that somebody who had been in some ways devoid or deficit of love most of his life, really finally found physical and romantic love in one of his best friends. And I'm just glad it's a redemptive story that our Lord would have allowed him to find that thing. And I pray that for myself, and that prayer has been answered, and I pray that for our listeners, that we would find all of the loves um, being enlivened in us, and sometimes only at the end of our stories, but that it would point to the fulfillment of love that we will, of course, find in heaven.
0: Matt, you had a couple of letters you wanted to highlight here.
2: Yes, uh, the one from June 3rd, 1953. Now, this was in the commentary included by the editors that preceded the letter. They put, her first reading of this story was three years earlier when she experienced what she described years later as an indefinable stirring and longing. I think what I loved about that, I I would imagine, presumably she described this and Mm -hmm. Lewis read this and somehow maybe it was a previous letter or maybe it was one that he never saw. But I would imagine that's like the number one thing he's going for. He loved Mm -hmm. longing. I mean, he says, I I did that with a little bit of a tongue in cheek, but with the toast in the beginning of this, how there doesn't need to be a point to everything. Sometimes you can just get immersed into a story, get drawn up by the beauty and, and feel this longing. That's honestly what I felt with mere Christianity. Ironically, a book packed with truth and points left and right. Mm-hmm. And I left it thinking to myself, I don't actually know if this is truth or not at that point in my life. Now I would obviously state it is, or most of it. But in reality, it was just, it, it, it stirred a longing in me. And so mm. I just love that some child wrote that. And then there was another one. It was December 18, 1953 which I guess I I just referenced sort of indirectly. I'm not quite sure what you meant about silly adventure stories without my point. If they are silly, then having a point won't save them. But if they are (laughs) good in themselves, and if by a point you mean some truth about the real world, which one can take out of the store, a story, probably I probably typed that wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I agree. At least I think that looking for a point in that sense may prevent one sometimes from getting the real effect of the story itself. I felt super seen here because Andrew, wasn't it with you that we were talking to Diana and I mentioned how I always want to get like truth put to me? And I think she mm-hmm. was convincing us this was around out of the silent planet, that there's just beauty in the language and you should just read it for the beauty and the poetry and the language. And I'm like, well, just give it to me left and right. A, B, C, D, E. And this Lewis is literally saying not everything has to have a point. Sometimes yes. there's a different
1: effect. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a wonderful poem. I'm, I'm going to see if I can I can pull it up really quickly. And I believe that you're right on the right track. And and by the way, the the idea of longing, right track's good enough for me. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that you're in the in in the heart of it. And and listeners, although we joke and we tease, um, I think that there's uh, uh, just such a a commonality between us all. And we just read the reviews today of um, of Letters to an American Lady of that section. And those of you who thankfully commented um, uh, on that. And the the interaction between us is, uh, uh, Proverbs talks about iron sharpening iron, and there's a certain amount of friction and a certain amount of pain and loss that goes along that, but it also pro- produces a kind of keenness and frankly love. And, and I think that um, I've got a parishioner who's just begun listening to Pints with Jack. And so she's starting in season one, Wise Woman, um, Mary Kay is, uh, is, is a, a wonderful person, but I think that most of what this podcast is about is a friendship amongst the three of us, but, uh, and also a friendship for Lewis, who seemingly invites friendship. I think that you can see that in these letters to children that he invites friendship, but so Matt, I love, I love what you're saying. And I think that the longing points to the absence, it's a pointer to love that longing points to the human condition that shows how much we need love and how little of it there is. Listeners, we are starting a political season in the United States. And what you will find is an abundance of the lack of love between and amongst candidates and all the rest. And I think what our political process and everything else cries out to, and yes, I get paid to say this cause I'm a priest is what we most need is the love of God active in our lives. In the poem Readjustment, Lewis said, I see that all along I was assuming a posterity of gentle hearts. Someone, however, distant in the depths of time who could pick up our signal, who could understand a story. And heartbreakingly, he says, there won't be. But I have to rebuke Jack and say, yes, there are. Here we are. And here are our listeners who can understand a story and see the longings that it produces us for the great story for the living word and for the one who will take us to heaven and and wipe away every tear and so and to me so much of why i'm A part of this and why I love Lewis is that he participates in the scriptural promise that there will one day be one who wipes every tear from our eyes and who will have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And to me, that's why we do all of this. And Matt, I think that you're wise to really point that out, that longing and the importance of story. And that's part of why he answers the children. So yeah, cheers to us.
2: (laughs) Great finish. Cheers to us. (laughs)
0: well Matt I, I'm i glad you felt seen by that and I'm, I'm very interested to see how it changes your approach as we continue moving through Lewis's books if you will oh, continue to look for give me A, B, C, D or E or sometimes you might say I just really like this bit this was beautiful
2: <laughs> it'll only make me aware that I am wrong in my statement but not my desire just for it to come
0: well that's a side benefit that I always enjoy <laughs> <laughs> Well, my last literary point was the fact that he actually addresses the question of good grammar in a letter from June 1956, saying, of course, there are no right or wrong answers about language in the sense in which there are right and wrong answers in arithmetic. Good English is whatever educated people talk, so that what is good Mm -hmm. in one place or time would not be so in another. Don't take any notice of teachers and textbooks in such matters. <laughs> and he offers a whole slew of suggestions and we would go into them but we're low on time and there are many of them but he gives a whole whole num- number of suggestions as to how this child can improve writing mm-hmm. and I love that he
1: says in essence that a preposition is something with which you should not end your sentence with um so yeah but it's a... what in, what intelligent and lovers
0: of language speak mm-hmm. Well, let's wrap up Letters to Children with Narnia business, one of the most <laughs> popular subjects in this letter collection. First of all, just a few things that we find out about Narnia from these letters that people might not necessarily mm-hmm. know. Aslan is Turkish for lion, and Jack prefers it, prefers it to be pronounced as Aslan, uh, rather than Aslan with a hard S or Z. Uh, And Lewis says that the story came to him in pictures. He keeps repeating that. And so I think there's got to be some level of that, that that's true, that he wasn't just being super clever about the planets. Uh, And one thing that particularly jumped out at me was in a letter to Patricia in 1960, he says, the stone table is meant to remind one of Moses's table. And this was I think back in season one or two, I think it was one when we did Learn the line that was the wardrobe. I think we mm-hmm. did it the first time around. I had made that suggestion about the stone table representing the law, which we know that we've broken the The way that the gospel is often presented, that there's a law that reveals our sin and we break it no matter how hard we try. So we need grace that comes through. Um, and so the fact that Lewis actually explicitly says that really did jump out at me.
1: Yes. Only one letter separates stone table and stone
0: tablet. Mm. Tea. Mm. Now I want tea. Uh, Children were (laughs) constantly writing to Lewis for more Narnia. In the early years, he could tell them about the books that were coming out next. He actually tells one American schoolboy called Michael not to look forward to the silver chair too much. He says, or you are sure to be disappointed. Uh, I th- I think it's always <laughs> good to keep your expectations down, but he didn't need to do that. Don't yes. worry. chair <laughs> <Silver laughs> was great. Silver deliver.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, he also wrote, uh, some of the ones that I highlighted here were, he, he kind of sometimes explained high level pic- high level concepts, big picture ideas. And I just wanted to highlight some of them because listeners might enjoy just hearing Lewis explicitly state his intentions. So he writes to another child about the upcoming release of The Magician's Nephew. You must have often wondered how the old professor in The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe could have believed all the children told him about Narnia. The reason was that he had been there himself as a little boy. This book tells you how he went there. And, Mm. of course, that was ages and ages ago by Narnia time, how he saw Aslan creating Narnia. And how the white witch first got into the world and why mm-hmm. there was a lamppost in the middle of the forest. Mm. So, so a little background information there.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as as adamant as I am that their book should be read in published order, I think such is their charm and such as Lewis's excellent of work in Revelation of, you know, the kind of greater story of God. Read, Read them. I would much rather people read them in the published order currently than they not read them at all. And there are great joys and great depths to find in Magician's Nephew.
2: FYI, I'm fully convinced by, I guess I don't know all the nuances of the ordering, but reading The Lion, The Witch, and Wardrobe first, because of the simple reason I now fully agree that I've read them all, it's the most magical. I remember the first time I came across Mm -hmm. it. Nearly read them all. It is really genuinely the most magical. (laughs) And to get like some, hey, I'm actually countering myself actually here a little bit, because mm-hmm. until we, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is like experiencing Narnia with wonder and awe. The magician's nephew's like, here's how it came about. It's like mm-hmm. the technical side of it. And I think it's just so beautiful to experience the wonder and the awe raw and wonder and ask the questions. Like, I'm convinced now. Sorry, Matt in London, because I think he likes to take the opposite (laughs) side of David. Matt, I don't agree with you on this one.
1: (laughs) After a scotch and a half, let me assert that I think the (laughs) most important thing is that one has read them all. And to have all seven books as one kind of unit of incredible imagination and possibility in one's mind, um, I think that that's more important than reading order. Read them all. I absolutely read them in published order. I'll argue that all day long. Don't get mad at me about what I'm about to say. Hot <laughs> no, take.
2: Not at all. I don't know if I read the Magician's Nephew first. I'd have wanted to continue.
1: <laughs> I agree. I didn't
2: like I, it near as much as like Tilley Tilleyface. Til have It's mature
1: and dark and all the rest, yeah. and it makes an excellent prequel and a and a, a terrible first read. But I to have so, all too. seven of the Narnias in your head speaking to. Not only Lewis's work, not only to each other in the Narnias, but also to our spiritual lives, I think is an important thing. Um, to me, I'd rather have them read Magician's nephew first than not read all seven um, at all. And so I think that's at least you know a, a blessing um, in in the midst of something that's you know obviously wrong and terrible to do.
0: <laughs> well, as I said, As the books were coming out and the children wrote to him saying they wanted to read more Narnian Chronicles, he could tell them what was coming out next. But obviously, of course, he could only do that for so long because after the last battle, there were going to be no more new Narnian books. And there's a delightful letter from an eight-year-old Jonathan who wrote, I hope you're going to write another one soon. If you don't, what am I going to read when I'm nine, 10, 11, and 12? Because he had (laughs) had one per year of his life up until that point. Uh, But it is from these inquiries that we find out that Lewis initially intended to write just one book, then he wrote a sequel, then a trilogy, and then decided to write all seven, which has very Mm -hmm. interesting downstream consequences for thinking about Dr. Ward's theory. Uh, But he did have one lovely suggestion to assuage the disappointment of the children when he was telling them that he wasn't going to be writing anymore. He wrote this to Sydney. I'm afraid I've said all I had to say about Narnia and there will be no more of these stories. But why don't you try and write one yourself? I was writing stories Mm. before I was your age, and if you try, I'm sure you'll find it great fun. Do. Hmm. I love that. I appreciate that. I love the, the
1: humility of that, and his understanding that part of his purpose was to inspire other writers. And, I mean, you have a load of other writers who have been influenced by Narnia. And so um, sadly, well, I understand the reasonings, but sadly, those other eighth Narnia books have been quashed by the CS Lewis company. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the idea of playing with these, these ideas I think is important. One of the things I did when I was working with children and doing you know, children's tracks at, at Lewis conferences is Lewis says, I've left you lots of hints and so I would take little bits like, where did the white stag come from in *The Lion, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*? Why was he required to um, grant wishes? And we would take those hints and flesh them out, and have the children go ahead and and write their little stories about um, about where that all came from. And I think that that's a great um, a great way to treat the Narnias. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, one of the common mistakes grown-ups make with regards to Narnia is to call them allegories and assume everything is a pure allegory. Um, and children make mm-hmm. the same mistake sometimes, and Lewis sets them straight in the letters. He writes to one child, you're mistaken when you think that everything in the books represents something in this world. I did not say to myself, let us represent Jesus as he really is in our world by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and that the son of God, as he became man in our world, became a lion there. And then imagine what would happen. Mm-hmm. But it's not everyone. But on the flip side of that, it's actually not everyone who sees the Christian connections in Narnia. And I've met people who said, oh, I read them through. I had no idea it had anything to do with Jesus uh in 1953 he responds to one child's question about the other name of aslan because if listeners recall at the end of voyage of the dawn Treader*, aslan says you must know me by another name in your world and clearly this child was writing to lewis saying i i don't get it what what name and lewis writes as to aslan's other name well i want you to guess Has there never been anyone in this world who, number one, arrived at the same time as Father Christmas? Two, said he was the son of the great emperor. Three, gave himself up for someone else's fault to be jeered at and killed by wicked people. Four, came alive again. Five, is sometimes spoken of as a lamb. See the end of the Dawn Treader. Don't you really know his name in this world? Think it over and let me know your answer. And this just shows Lewis as being a good teacher. Rather than just giving the answer, he's he's providing some hints and some pointers, and that encourages the student to take that step. In some ways, I think that
1: all stories point to the true story, mm-hmm. and there are elements
0: in that. And I think that's what Lewis and Tolkien were all about. Actually, in one of the other letters from 1953, Lewis says something which I think is really helpful to understand the nature of Narnia. Uh, he writes, "Of course, you are right about the Narnian books being better than tracts, at least in the way a picture is better than a map." And so, for those who aren't mm. familiar, tracts are usually short booklets, usually making a point, usually a gospel presentation, some form of argument. And Narnia doesn't—it's st- not a frontal assault like that. It's not—it's not a didactic argument. It's, as he says, it's a picture it's meant to inspire. It's not so much a map that provides a a point-by-point detail. Absolutely.
1: And that calls to mind um, Lewis's statement in Mere Christianity, that theology is in some ways a map of what all Christians or thoughtful Christians have thought about um, Christianity. Somebody's standing on on the shore, somebody is traversing the sea, and so, um, this idea of a map as another way to communicate truth. Uh, my wife, of course, has written uh, a number of tracks, including tracks about Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> of course, she
0: has. She's Lazo Major. Of course, she has. Now, of course, a lot of children wrote to Lewis about the fate of Susan. And so, Matt. Mm. <laughs> spoiler warning: <laughs> uh, we will we will talk about this when we record our uh. last battle episodes it's fairly soon, because we decided that we'd better record them quickly uh, as soon as Matt has read yes. the, the last battle before he forgets everything that happened there. <laughs> 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 Which is super
2: fitting to this next actual statement, and this this one actually stuck out to me because this is both a scary. And powerful idea. So he says, Peter gets back to Narnia in it, the last battle. I'm afraid Susan does not. Haven't you noticed in the two you've read that she is rather fond of being too grown up? I'm Mm -hmm. sorry to say that side of her got stronger and she forgot about Narnia. Mm. And I think this concept in general has always been very powerful to me. I've mentioned this before, but you know, it's the concept that we can experience reality and still forget it or turn away mm-hmm. from it. I think of the chosen, I've explained that scene of when mm-hmm. when Mary uh Magdalene turns away from Jesus after being with him and she falls back in her own ways and he comes back. Like I don't know. I just think that's that's um a scary and powerful idea. But for anyone who's hearing that, equally as beautiful is when you do come back, Christ's mercy is still waiting, arms wide open. He's not like disappointed. Well, you had your one shot, you're with me, you turned away, sorry, mm, you don't get mm. a second shot. Not true. You will get as many shots as you want coming back to him. He'll always welcome you with open arms, with an authentic turn.
1: I'm, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because absolutely for me, a great divorce was instrumental in changing my way that I viewed how God offers salvation. And I went from kind of thinking that God uh, will give salvation to the select group that do things his way to, and it was Great Divorce where I found this, that God will thrust salvation on anyone who will stand for it. And I love that he leaves the door open for Susan. And I believe that she got in um, Because God is so merciful and so steadfast in his love for us and will tease out any thread in order to bring us to um, the understanding and to the love and to the receiving of the mercy of God. And so it was Till we have Faces that changed that absolutely for me. And I'm sorry, not Till We have Faces. It was The <laughs> Great Divorce. Ah, the great divorce that did it. And, and that's an essential part of my theology. And I would never, ever eject that. That's, that's, that's crucial. What is
2: happening, Andrew? You're talking about the great divorce. I'm about to bring up Orwell.
1: (laughs) It's because we're both right.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, you know, we're just, we're, we're rubbing off on each other. I love it. Goodness is iron sharpening iron. Well, so there's another letter dated uh, January 22nd, 1957, where he explains more of the Susan situation. And this is connects to what you just said, Andrew, the books don't tell us what happened to Susan. She's left alive in this world at the end, having by then turned into a rather silly conceited young woman, but there is plenty of time for her to mend. And perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end in her own way. And I was thinking of the hope of Orwell, because it was sort of like her, Mm -hmm. because he says in the letter that she lived a working type life, sinned, but ultimately found her way. And Mm -hmm. maybe Susan will follow a similar path. At least we can hope.
1: Yes, without question. And and that's the great hope of um, the great divorce. And I think that we see that in Orwell, who has been lying to herself all of her life. But at the end, love casts aside our own lies, casts aside our own selves, and will Mm -hmm. thrust itself on anyone who will receive love. That's part of why I love being a priest. That's part of why I love handing people the body and the blood of Christ. That if anybody who will just barely receive Christ on their tongue will receive all of of the potential of heaven along with it. And so I, In some ways, the, deba- the debate is senseless. I see the two as a unit um, that declare um, how much hope there is for all of us, and hope even for Susan, of course. David, I'm ready for this next one.
0: <laughs> well, of course, we can't leave this book without <laughs> at least mentioning the infamous letter sent on April 23rd, 1957. If you didn't, I was going <laughs> to... Where Lewis writes, dear Lawrence, I think I agree with your order for reading the books more than your mother's. He's wrong. What order was that? <laughs> David,
2: which, which order was that? Just so I can hear it out loud.
0: April 23rd, 1957. No, no, I'm not saying it. <laughs> <laughs> we will probably readdress this directly with an entire episode at some point. So I'm just going to highlight that this is here. It's wrong. Uh, and we'll explain why later,
2: and i'd like I'd
0: like to highlight
2: that it made a note in the footnotes that he also reaffirmed this. So we can't state he just did this to make a little child happy. oh we can uh, in another place
0: <laughs> we can with and we all do. this said,
2: I'm fo- <laughs> with all this said, I think he's wrong <laughs> too. <laughs>
0: But uh, we're not going to end on a point of contention. I'd like to end with my favorite letter sent in 1955 to Lawrence's mother. She had written Mm. to Lewis because her son was afraid that he loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. And this was the quote of the week. Lewis's response is pure gold. Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing. For the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he's loving Aslan, he's really loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. You know, I thought there's a lot of wisdom here. When we love things that truly represent reality and the divine in the proper way, we probably have a bit, I'm stretching here, maybe theologically, I don't know, but we probably have a bit more grace if it goes a bit too far. I was thinking of like the saints. I was thinking of Mary. I was thinking of like when we love these beautiful things that really represent the divine in a wonderful way, there's always a fear of going a little bit too far. But I, I, I kind of thought this applied to that situation slightly.
0: I don't know if I'd put it quite like that. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think I would just fall back to the lesson that we learned from the four loves, that there's no such thing as loving something too little. Uh, only just not appropriately, not rightly ordered. The the solution to loving uh, something disordinately is loving the more important things more. Mm-hmm. Yes, and love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And it's the thing that
1: we see in in the great divorce as well as until we have faces, this kind of urging us to order our loves rightly, to love God. Well, no. Actually, the first thing is not to love God. The first thing is to receive the love of God, and then to respond by loving Him and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And of course, is love if if love is God's name, and love is
0: the thing that He wants to give to
1: us. The enemy is going to try to divide us. So,
0: and then that's the last part of that letter, and this is how I'd like to wrap up the episode. Lewis writes this: If I were Lawrence, I just say in my prayers something like this. Dear God, if the things I've been thinking and feeling about those books are things you don't like and are bad for me, please take away those feelings and thoughts. If they are not bad, then please stop me from worrying about them. And if Mr. Lewis Mm. has worried any other children by his books or done them any harm, then please forgive him and help him to never do it again.
2: (laughs) I love that ending.
0: (laughs) I love it too, because he splits the
1: infinitive. Never to do it again. But Lewis uses the colloquial and encourages us to pray for him.
0: Well, any closing thoughts before we wrap things up?
1: I'm just delighted in the letters and I'm um,
0: grateful to you, David, that you chose this as the topic of the season. Me too, me too. The next (laughs) collection that we're going to look at is the Latin letters of C.S. Lewis, where he wrote to St. Giovanni Calabria in Latin. But I hear the call for final drinks. So I will just wrap up by thanking our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah, our intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners and patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Mary, Margaret, Aldo, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud1, Bud2, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all the prayer requests in our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and join us next time. When we'll continue going further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.